Good morning. I'm happy to be here again, be able to open the Word of God to you. If you're not already there, um, James chapter 2 will be in verses, as was read, 14 through the end of the chapter 26. Um, so I'm really excited to be here this morning. Nice chilly morning. Um, it's a good turn of the season. I don't know about you, but something about waking up and feeling just a little bit cold is nice. Um, and this is a great time to, to come together and worship the Lord. Um, so as I mentioned, we're going to be in, in James chapter 2. And, and really, it's a very simple um, exhortation. I want my sermon and to be the same as what I believe um, James is saying. And he says in, in three different ways, three different times, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is useless. Um, faith without works is dead. They're like, okay. You said it a couple of times, James. What do you mean by that? And so what we're hopefully going to do in the next few minutes is just unpack a little bit of that. Um, what does it mean? Um, and hopefully come away encouraged. If you're in Christ, um, I would love for you to walk away today with that assurance. Uh, um, Christ is yours and your sins are forgiven in him. Um, and if you're not in Christ, one of the things I'm hoping to do is um, gently and kindly reveal that. Um, perhaps you have a claim to faith. Um, but in fact, that faith is dead. And so I want to invite you to Christ who can forgive all sins. Um, but more than that, gives everlasting life. Um, and he's a, just a wonderful Savior. Um, we've been singing about him. Um, we're going to read about him. Um, but thanks be to God who has saved us in Christ Jesus. Um, so as it starts, um, James actually gives a just a living, breathing, good old-fashioned um, illustration. Right? He mentions, um, you see in verse 15, after he's asked about faith that doesn't have works, he says, can that faith save him? And then he says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Um, and I think this passage and hopefully this sermon um, will just be a simple illustration of um, what we all did growing up in elementary school, right? Have you guys ever been to a show and tell? Anybody? So one person that, thank you, two ladies that went to the same show and tell that I did, right? But what the, the, the idea is that you, you bring something with you um, to tell the class about. I was always a little bit intimidated um, to do that. I could talk all day long, but I was just like, what could I bring that would be, you know, good enough or that would be exciting enough or, you know, someone else is going to bring something, you know, someone's got something more expensive or something better or whatever it may be. Um, but what I think James is telling is he's talking about a, a show and tell, or could I even call it a tell and show, right? He's saying if you say you have something, you also have to show that you have something, right? What I mean by that is, you know, we have a, a preschool here, and those ladies do a phenomenal job um, instructing kids um, in who the Lord is um, and loving on them. But, right, if they had a little show and tell, and, and one of the kiddos, you know, four-year-old, just full of ambition, he wants to, to show everybody that he has the best pet, says, I have a pet ostrich named Leonard, and we keep him in the backyard, <laughs> right? That'd be a fantastic claim, you know? Who am I to say that he's lying? He's lying. But who am I to say that he's lying, right? But the, the whole purpose of a show and tell, or shall I say like tell and show, is like, all right, 
You get up there and you say you have a pet ostrich named Leonard. I'm going to need at least a photograph, if not see him tethered out back, right? So that you can prove, not only claim that you have a pet ostrich named Leonard, but also prove that you have one. Or maybe a kid that says, last night, teacher, I read The Count of Monte Cristo, right? He's read the whole thing. You know, the four years old, we have a lot of prodigies over there. You guys would be impressed. Read through the whole Count of Monte Cristo, right? Unless there's a diorama of Edmund chiseling his way out of Chateau d'If, right? That kid did not read the Count of Monte Cristo last night, right? And the teacher would kindly say, and are you sure? Like, did you watch the movie? Like, was, there a, was it a different book? Was it very, very, very abridged version of the Count of Monte Cristo, right? You, you're saying something, but you got to show us something, all right? Or maybe, and one last final example of this, this tell and show is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm cousins with John Wayne. Right? Some of y'all didn't resonate with the ostrich or the diorama, but you're like, yeah, I would love to show up to show and tell and say, I am, I am cousins, distant but cousins with John Wayne, right? You'd have to, you'd have to prove that somehow, right? Even if it was a fake family tree, even if it was a, a, a cheap subscription to see the bloodlines, right? You can't just toss out statements like that without giving some kind of proof. And that's what James is saying. Lightly paraphrased, right? You can't just say something. You have to do something. You can't just say Jesus is Lord. And that phrase and that reality not have an impact on your life and the lives around you. So James gives an illustration. He says, let's say someone comes in here. Maybe it's on a Sunday morning. Let's say they stop by the church office. Or let's say they see you this week. And they've expressed to you, maybe you can just tell, they don't have the clothes fit for this weather. Some of you guys would say that about me in my short sleeves. Right? But you can tell they don't have the clothes for this weather. You can tell that they're hungry. They've told you as much. It says someone lacking in daily food. Maybe just not a one-time meal, but you can tell that they're, they're, they're starving. You can tell they're malnourished. You can tell they're hungry. And James uses this illustration. He says, if that person comes to you and you say what? God bless. And you say, be warmed and filled. Peace be upon you. James would say to you, your faith is dead. It's empty. You don't have the ostrich tied out back. You, you haven't read the book. You don't know Jesus Because if that man or that woman who comes to you and says, I'm hungry, can get a well-wishing kind of Christianity, but not an active, merciful, tangible kind of Christianity, it's not real. It's fake. It's dead. It's empty. He actually, he says this a couple times throughout this chapter, and we're going to see it. He says, that faith. I'd love for you guys to think about it that way. Like, that faith can't save him. He actually says throughout, he says, that faith, we can't even call it faith. It's dead. It's not alive. It's non-existent. Um, it's, it's dead, right? It's not there at all. And so I just want to ask you at the onset, does your faith benefit anybody else? Does your faith benefit anybody else? If you were to ask the people in your home, if we were to ask your friends, if we were to ask your neighbors or coworkers or, 
or even some of the homeless of this city. If I was to ask them, have they ever benefited from your faith? What would they say? Or is your faith as empty as their bellies? Because it's one thing, right, to not have anything to give someone. It's one thing to, to maybe perhaps be wise, you know, and give them things that you know that they can use, like food and like clothes, right? I'm not, I'm not saying um, that we shouldn't be wise with who we give to and how we give to them, right? But we should give something. And if your faith doesn't benefit somebody else, James here is implying, well, he's explicitly saying that faith is dead. So I just want you to ask. That might be asking you, you asking yourself. Think of your siblings. Think of the people around you. Has your faith ever benefited them? Because James is saying mercy received transforms a life and gets extended into other people's lives. All right. Hear that again. Mercy comes into a heart. It transforms it. It transforms it and it goes out. It touches other people. It's impossible for the mercy of God to be extended to someone and them not in turn extend it to somebody else. So if that chain reaction stops with you, if you're like, I just love God's mercy, I just love receiving His grace and His kindness, I love singing about Jesus and all that He's done for me, and that doesn't turn into some kind of outflow, some kind of benefit, some kind of tangible care or kindness, I would ask you, friend, do you know Jesus? Is your faith a living faith? Or do you just have a claim? Do you just say it, but you don't actually have it? That is a very dangerous place to be. Have you ever thought about that? Church, this room, the building I should say, not the people, but church is a very scary place to be. Because perhaps some in this room could come their entire lives to church, sing the songs, hear the sermons, go out, be even pepped up and ready for the week, but still not have living faith, true saving faith in Jesus. And that's a scary place to be, folks. And so James asks us, has your faith benefited someone else? Um, He just talked about mercy. Um, Thank you, Scott, for opening up the word about partiality. Um, That was so encouraging. James just got done saying that if you show partiality, Right? If you only love the, maybe the people who, who look like you, or if you only love the people who have the same amount of money as you, or fill in the blank, you're showing favoritism, you're showing partiality. And he says what that does is it sets you up as a judge. Right? It puts you on the seat and you have the gavel and you determine that person deserves mercy, that person deserves grace, that person not so much. Have you seen what they're wearing? Have you seen what they've done? Have you seen what they look like? They don't. Right? And so that's why partiality and favoritism is so dangerous. And then James says something about that judgment or sitting in judgment. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. He says, we shouldn't sit in a seat passing out judgments, right? We should be on the streets passing out mercy, right? Mercy wins. Your life has been changed not because God decided to to judge you, but because he judged Christ. And because of his judgment on Christ, he was able to show mercy to you, right? Mercy triumphs over judgment. And there's a parable or story that Jesus told where he says, when I come to, to bring my people into this new heaven and new earth, there's going to be a day of judgment. 
says, and I'm going to put the, I'm going to put the, the goats on the left. I'm going to put the sheep on the right. And so he says to the sheep, he says, blessed are you to receive this kingdom that's been prepared for you from all time. He, he, he gives them what, what is rightfully theirs, their inheritance in God. It's this glorious day. And, and those, those righteous, he calls them righteous, actually say to him, um, well, Jesus, they kind of have a question mark. And Jesus says, because whenever you saw me naked, you clothed me. When you saw me sick, you visited me. When you saw me hungry, you gave me food. And when I was in prison, you guys came and visited me. This is Jesus talking. And they're like, Jesus, we never saw you sick. We never saw you hungry. We never saw you in prison. What are you talking about? Jesus says, if you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. He says, come on. Enjoy everlasting life. And then he looks at the crowd on the left. Sorry, y'all are sitting over here today. But he looks over at the crowd on the left and he says, and with you guys, everlasting fire. Judgment that's also been prepared for you. And they say, Jesus, what are you talking about? How could you say that? We never saw you hungry. We never saw you thirsty or in prison. We never saw you lonely. We promise. We swear. Right? We, we tell you that if you would have, if we would have seen you, we would have come along. We would have fed you. We would have clothed you. And Jesus says, when you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it unto me. Right? So there's Jesus teaching that, that the ones with all the works will go to heaven and all the ones who don't have the works won't. No, Jesus is teaching that these followers of him, these ones that have been prepared this kingdom, their faith was real. So what did it do, church? It loved Right? Their faith was real. It was genuine. It was from God. And so their faith showed mercy. It visited people. It loved them. It provided for them. It clothed them. It wrapped them in a hug and said, it's going to be okay. That's what their faith did. And Jesus says, get in here. Let's enjoy each other forever. It's amazing. Right? And James is saying the same thing. He said this already in chapter 1. He said, that the word, receive with meekness the implanted word. And then he says, later in that chapter, he says, impure religion is to visit widows and orphans. What are, you ta- what are you talking about? Like, so true religion, right? True religion is to visit orphans and widows. Is that all I have to do to be right with God? No. James is saying, receive with meekness the implanted word. Receive the grace of God in your life, the good news of the gospel. And then in his mind, five verses later, in his mind, the, the immediate reaction, the evidence of truth, the diorama, the ostrich named Leonard, right? The proof that that was true living faith is that they would visit orphans and widows, those maybe destitute or in this culture ostracized, no pun intended, those on the outskirts who had received no love now had love. To James, it just makes sense, right? And he says, that faith, look again, verse 17, as I'm asking you to, to, to ask yourself, has your faith benefited anybody? He says, verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What good is it? What good is it? 
So has your faith benefited anybody else? Let's keep moving into the verses 18 and 19. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, James says, and I will show you my faith by my works. So there's this hypothetical opponent. Pretty common in New New Testament writings. Paul used this a lot. James is using it here. So he's saying, I'm going I'm to tell you that faith uh, leads to or is completed by, is shown out in works. And then he's, he's anticipating their response. So maybe he's even anticipating your response to what I just said. Well, well I have faith and you have works. Right? And so this hypothetical opponent, this, this person perhaps could say to this church that's reading this, well, let's not get caught up in all the details, James. Right? I have works. You have faith. It's all good, brother. Right? Just don't make me feel convicted. Just don't step on these toes. Right? And James says, that's not true. Right? You can't divide faith and works. Right? You can't separate them. He says, you may say, I have faith and you have works. What is James' response? Right? James says, and I, he says, you have faith apart from your works, or at least you say you do. I will show you my faith. By my works. For James, this makes complete sense. He says, if you want to know what I believe, look at my life. Can I say that again? If you want to know what I believe, look at my life. You still have to get that order right. And we're going to talk about that. James isn't just saying, all right, if you have enough good things in your life, then you're in. He's, He's still not saying that. But he's saying that true faith is accompanied by, proven by, and it produces works. Right? It does something. It does something. And for that person, perhaps in this room, that has all the right theology, you may believe in all the right things. You may believe that God exists. Maybe your whole life you, you believe in a higher power. Ever since Grandma taught it to you, you've believed that God is real. Right? That's not enough. You say, I've been in church my whole life, Jeremy, and you're just a young whippersnapper. Right? It's not enough. James is saying, true faith produces works. He says, show me your faith apart from your works. It's dead. I will show you my faith by my works. Is James after just spiritual activity, though? Is James just saying, all right, just get busy with the things of life. If it feels spiritual, just do it. God's looking at those things. No. No, he's saying these true, genuine works of obedience, true, genuine works um, of, of repentance. Even Jesus said that. The Pharisees came out and he said, he says, why are you here? Um, he says the, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. He says, repent and have works because of that repentance. Show yourself, show that you have repented and, and believe and, and so James here says that faith without works is dead. Um, and let's continue in verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And what James is quoting here is the Shema, which every Jew would have known. It's Deuteronomy 6. It's hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and strength. Every Jew would have known that truth or known that recitation. They would have said it 
many times a day. Hear, O Israel, your God is one. James says, you believe that God is one. Good job. But he says, even demons believe and they shudder. And what I think James here has is even a little bit of sarcasm. He says, even demons' theology produces action. It produces some kind of response. Your theology, your faith, remember, he's saying false faith. He's saying that's not even producing any kind of activity or response whatsoever. Demons believe that and shudder because they know that that one God, that God who is one, is also a consuming fire. They know that he's Yahweh, Lord of heaven and earth. He knows that he's righteous in every way. And they know that the wicked will not go unpunished. All right, so the demons shudder. Let me ask you, what does your theology, what does your faith, what does your confession reveal or show up or produce in your life? Does it produce good works? Because if it's lacking, you might be in the same boat with these demons that have it right in their head, but they don't have it right in their heart. And I know someone's going to walk away and say, did that man just call me a demon? No. For the record, I did not. But James is saying that's the same kind of thing, y'all. You have to understand that you can't, just, you can't just intellectually agree that God is God. You can't just intellectually say even that Jesus is Lord Yes, that's the confession, I believe, of the New Testament. Every true believer it says only by the Spirit someone could say, Jesus is Lord. Right? But even saying those words, saying a certain prayer, some kind of intellectual assent to, to truth. Maybe you're like, rationally, I believe, even in the resurrection. You could even say those statements and believe those words. Hear me. That might not be saving faith. If it's not true, repentant faith, if it's not true trust in Jesus as a refuge for your soul, if it's not true running to Christ because He's the only one who can save, He's the only one that has the power in heaven and earth, the only name by which we must be saved, if it's not that kind of faith, if it's not that kind of desperation, it might just be in your head. And I've been praying with the pastors this whole week. I'm not trying to scare anyone who's in Christ out of Christ. Well, I couldn't do that. He's going to keep you forever. Amen. So I'm not asking anybody in here to, to walk away with a false sense of guilt or a false sense of shame or a, a, um, a false, oh, I have to conjure up works. That's not what I'm saying. Church, if you're in Christ, your faith will produce works. And maybe you can look back at your life and you can actually be like, praise God, it has. Maybe you see love in your life. Maybe you see grace in your life. Maybe you see devotion to God in your life. That's a, that's a work of God's grace in your life. Right? That's faith that has produced works. Maybe you show kindness to those people who aren't kind to you. Right? That's God's grace. But I want to challenge those who perhaps it's a tree that has roots, but it doesn't think it has any business bearing fruit. Those are the people that I'm talking to this morning. True faith, which is the root of our Christianity, will result in fruit, will result in good works. And we can't say, ah, no, you have faith, I have works. Some Christians are just really good at mercy ministries. Some people are just really good at loving homeless. Some people are just really good at showing it out. It's just, for me, it's between me and God, right? Um, 
Don't be deceived. Faith without works is dead. Verse 20, and this is our concluding section. He says, I'll go ahead and read the whole thing if you would bear with me. Um, and then we'll, we'll walk through it. Um, verse 20 says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Right? As I read that last section, you and I have a lot to talk about. Right? We have a lot to say. Perhaps some of you, um, it was a, as a red flag whenever you read the verse that says, um, verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Uh, that might have been a ding, 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 ding. Right? I've actually heard the opposite phrase. Um, Romans um, 3.28 says, We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Right? So James and Paul have two verses or two, two um, statements about what faith is and about works, and we have, to, we have to dive into that a little bit. And one thing that's going to be helpful to realize is that these are two different authors. Um, I do believe that James and Paul are using the word justified differently. Let me explain that. There's an initial justification and there's a, a final justification. Right, initial justification is whenever a, a sinner repents of their sin um, and trusts in Christ to save them. God actually imputes Christ's righteousness to them or, or gives, if you could say, as a covering Christ's righteousness to them as clothing. And so God sees me. Right? He sees me in Christ's righteousness, and I don't feel like it all the time. I don't live like it all the time. I'm messed up. Right? Because of my faith in Christ, though, I am initially justified, declared righteous before God. In another sense, and I have a couple examples of this, so I'm not just trying to squirm out of the, the text and what it says. There's also a final justification. There's a, there's a justification that happens on that day, an actually similar day that I described in Matthew 25 with the sheep and the goats. There's a final justification that actually proves, proves that initial faith, a life of good works, and is vindicated. I'm going to use that word a lot. So this final justica- justification that says, is vindicated. Um, This is what Jesus said um, in Matthew. He said, wisdom is justified by her children. So the the first one would have been Paul. This one I'm talking more is James, right? Vindicated. In the end, shown to be true. In the end, shown to be what it really was. Jesus uses a phrase. He says, wisdom is justified by her children. So is he talking about a sense of justified, like wisdom somehow made right with God? No. He uses the word the same to say, wisdom in its full form, has a bunch of kiddos and wisdom sitting there with all their kiddos beside and actually shows, proves that wisdom was right. It's vindicated. Um, another sense of this um, would be, um, I'll go ahead and skip ahead. I was going to share this later, but I think it fits. Um, in First Timothy 3.16, 
I mean, it has, there's this probably the earliest creed, one of the earliest creeds of the church. It talks about Jesus. It says he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So it says he was seen, manifest in the flesh, talking about our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And then it says he was vindicated by the spirit. But the word there is the same as this word justified. Right, so did somehow Jesus need to be made right with God? No. Did Jesus somehow need God to um, give him something that he, he was already not? No, not at all. Jesus was perfect. Jesus is God. Jesus fulfilled the law and lived a beautiful life in, in the sight of God. Right, but when it says he was vindicated by the Spirit or justified by the Spirit, it's actually talking about whenever, whenever God raised him from the dead. And, and if you've been tracking with James' argument, that makes complete sense to the context here. He says, faith by itself is dead. But he says, therefore realize that we are vindicated. Our faith is proven with works, with actions. So in verse 24, when it says, you see that a person's justified by works alone and not by faith alone, I believe he's talking about that imaginary, you can call it faith, faith alone, but it's not really faith. He says, so therefore we're actually proved our faith is confirmed on that final day. It's going to be shown to be true faith in the sight of God and in the sight of the whole congregation and because it was proved through works of obedience. And it makes sense in my mind. I understand that there's a, there's a lot to swallow there. Um, so I, I'd invite you to do your own digging. I want to keep unpacking this and I want to use um, what James did, his own examples. So he says, you want to be shown faith apart from works is useless. Look in verse 21. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. One thing that's really important to understand between the relationship between works and faith and even uses the word righteousness there, is that what James quotes is actually ironically the same thing that Paul quotes when it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's talking about an initial justification. He was made right with God on the basis of his faith. And, and theologians say there was some 30 years between that being made right with God and 30 years until God called Abraham and it says even tested, you could say tested his faith, proved his faith by calling him to sacrifice Isaac. And so it says in that sacrificing of Isaac or that willingness to sacrifice Isaac, his faith that he had 30 years ago that was made him right with God, right? It wasn't all by itself. It wasn't faith in a field off somewhere with no works, it says that faith actually had works. That faith produced obedience in the life of Abraham so much that he was willing to sacrifice his own son. Um, and, and Gil spoke to this at the end of the summer. And so James is saying, don't you see? One, if his faith wouldn't have been real, it wouldn't have produced any kind of obedience. Don't you see that he was, he was declared righteous at that moment and he was proved righteous whenever he was willing to give his own son. He was justified. He was vindicated. Abraham didn't just say, yeah, I believe you, God. All those stars. Mm-hmm. 
I see him. Can't count him. You know, he doesn't go back to the tent and say to Sarah, like, this is, this is nonsense, right? No, no, his faith was real. It was active. And it says that even his faith was completed by his works. Does that mean that he needed works to add on um, in order to be right with God? I don't believe that. But I do believe in the sense that James is using this word. I believe that he can say that Abraham was vindicated. Abraham's works, our faith was proven by his works. Um, I need to keep moving on that note. Um, but let me go ahead and look down at verse, we were in verse 23. Look in verse 24. So he says again, he says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Verse 25 says, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Right, so he uses another example. And, and why does he do this? I think James is, is eager to talk about uh, even partiality again, favoritism again. James is, is tired of this church discriminating against um, people who maybe don't look like them. So he uses a patriarch. He says that patriarch had faith and works, so it showed that it was true faith. And then he says, and also there was a prostitute. Right, could you use two more extremes? Everybody knew the name of Abraham. Jews would have almost even revered or venerated the name of Abraham. Right? He was called a friend of God. Right? I can get it for him. Right? He has faith and works. Um, James says, and don't forget the prostitute. Don't forget the Gentile that we don't mention very often. Don't forget the scandalous grace that God showed whenever he decided to, to redeem a woman who had no business being redeemed, who had no business being in the line of Christ. She had no business with the grace of God. And he says that's exactly the kind of person that God chooses, that God pursues, that God redeems, saves, and gives a faith that produces works. And so Rahab, it says, whenever the spies came, says she was justified by her works. Again, like I said, we have to think through this. We can't just be like, well, Scripture never disagrees, so they must just be, right, we've got to think about this. What does it mean? What does it mean that she was justified by her works? I believe that it means that her faith was shown to be real. Her faith produced obedience. That's how you know it's true and lasting faith. That's how you know it's a faith from God. So can you imagine, for a second, the spies come and quickly knock on the door, and, and I'm referencing a story that, that all of us probably don't know, and I apologize, I don't have time to go through it all. But these spies come into the land, they're knocking on the door, they're running away from um, the enemy, they're in Jericho, they're incognito, they don't want to be caught, they're knocking on Rahab's door, and she, she lets them in, right, and she harbors them, she keeps them safe, she protects them from her own people. But can you imagine if Rahab slipped open the door, right, the little lock at the top, and says, yes, right, they say, yeah, we're spies from, from Israel. Yeah, yeah. And then the Bible does say, she, she, she says, yeah, we've heard about you. We believe that Yahweh is, the, is God of heaven and earth, and we've, we've heard you coming, and we're scared to death. So she actually had a, a profession in God. She actually said, yeah, the Lord is Lord. Can you imagine, though, if she, she said, oh, yeah, I believe that, and then just closed the door. Good luck. 
Right? That's what this passage is saying. You can't just say something. You can't just tell people that you have a faith and make a claim to faith. It has to be shown in obedience. And so Rahab, having faith that God is God, having faith that those spies were actually his people, and she wanted to be on the right side, if I could say it like that, she opened wide the door. She said, get in here. She hid them. She even lied for them. And and it says on that day... That prostitute was saved. Her faith saved her. As Ephesians would say, it is by God's grace through faith. Forgive me. By grace we are saved through faith. Not of any works that we've done so that anybody could boast, so that Abraham can brag about being a patriarch, so that Rahab can brag about what she did. But so that it was shown that her faith was real. She obeyed. So as I wrap up, I want to ask you, church, does your faith obey? Does your faith provide for others' needs? Does your faith produce good works? Does your faith prove itself through obedience? I have a slide I'd like to put up there. Oh, you guys haven't been looking at any of that the whole time. That's the story of my life. I thought my wife had this over there. She's so good like that. So what is the difference, church, between true and false faith? True faith provides for others' needs, produces good works, and proves its vitality through obedience. It's in the end justified, vindicated by obedience. But don't get the wrong idea. If you're sitting in this room, I want you to know that false faith simply well wishes others. It exists by itself And it proves it's dead through lack of obedience. So I want to ask you, do you have true faith? I want to ask you, is your faith false or true? Is it dead or alive? Because if you have true faith, it's going to provide for others' needs. It's going to produce good works. And it's going to prove itself through obedience. And so that's my invitation to just assess your life to see whether your faith is a true claim by the way that James describes it. Because he says, so as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And after all this conversation about how we're saved by grace through faith alone, but how that faith produces good works in the life of a believer, I'd actually like to conclude by telling you that we are saved by good works the good works of Jesus Christ. It is his merit alone that is the basis of our salvation. It is his righteousness alone that can save us. And it's an amazing thing that we can have faith in that righteousness and be clothed in it. And then over the course of our lives, we can actually, could I say, fill into those clothes usually has a negative connotation to fill into your clothes, but you can fill into those clothes with righteousness and obedience and that the vase of faith can be filled up with good works and the water of faith. And we can show that it is in Jesus alone that we have salvation and that it is by his works and trusting in those works, trusting that he has done something that we could never do, trusting that he died a death that we should have rightfully died. But then he rose again 
in resurrection and new life, giving us a life that we don't deserve. And it's only through faith in him that we are saved. And so um, the hers and the browns are actually going to sing a song of response, um, talking about um, the works of Christ, the merit of Christ. And as you listen to them, you'll see that it's a a merit not our own. Um, It's a merit that's given to us um, by God um, through faith in Christ alone. And so we're thankful for that. Um, Thank you, guys. Um, Let me go ahead and actually close by praying, um, and then you guys can sing. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to gather and listen to your word. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you that you have given us faith. If we are in Christ, that saves us. And thank you that faith is not alone, that it is accompanied, completed, and vindicated by good works. And so we crave those kind of lives. I pray for anyone in this room who has a claim to faith, but in fact their faith is dead and useless. I pray that they would see it today and that they would turn to Christ. And we will praise you as you save from all tribes and tongues and nations of people a kingdom of priests for yourself purchased by your very own blood. Thank you for your merits, O Christ. It's in your name we pray.